I'm going to read aloud from God's Word, and then we are going to walk through together why it is we've gathered today. Why it is that we've gathered this particular Sunday uh, with all our families as we prepare for a very unique, very historical, very significant, and very eternal celebration tomorrow. Follow along while I read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. Pardon, 19. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius, Quirinius, I practiced it, but I missed it. Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger." Because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Some of you could probably quote this along with me as I read. As anyone who's seen the Charlie Brown Christmas special is at least pseudo familiar with it. But this is a beautiful text. And I pray that. What God will do is help us to understand more about Christmas through this text. My, my main point today that I'm trying to get through to you is that Christmas proclaims God's glory. That in fact Christmas is all about God's glory. And what I want to do is I want to give you five, maybe six. I think we're going to stick to five. Five points of how Christmas proclaims God's glory. And we're going to walk through this text to do so. 
Are you ready? All right. Number one, Christmas reveals God's sovereignty. Turn back to verse one. And we're going to see that in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And then we even see a little bit of a, of a side remark to clarify to the, the man that this letter was written to. This was the first res- registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. What we see in these words is, in fact, a very historically accurate and very important comment on the historical marker that the birth of Christ actually took place. You see, it's very interesting when you read the Bible, it doesn't read like uh, mythology. It, it actually is not written even remotely similar to much of the, the, the mythology that was taking place at the time. Rather, it uses very in-depth and intentionally historic remarks. And one of these is Augustus here. You see, at this time, when Augustus was proclaiming this taxation or this registration of the major empires that had ruled and, and, and ruled over the earth up to this point, meaning Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and now Rome, this was the first one to reach the magnitude that would be able to claim that all the world should be registered. You see, God's sovereignty has brought about the birth of Christ at a very particular time in history. We see that he's actually intending to fulfill a prophecy made in Daniel chapter 2. Hundreds of years prior, verses 40 and 44, about the state in which to look for this son of man. There was, in fact, Augustus, the one who was ruling over, uh, was a part of the, the Romanization of the entire world. And this allowed for a simplification of the global system at the time. There was, in fact, so much simplicity that was brought about through the Roman conquering of the world that all of a sudden there were entire regions that were completely unhindered by warring, by warring countries, warring city-states. People could now cross borders that had never been able to cross borders before because they were all under one citizenship, the Romans. So this, this in fact, had brought a level of peace to the earth. The earth was presently in a peace. Now, it was a peace bought with bloodshed. It was a peace of a horrible, wicked ruler. But it was peace nonetheless. And this peace brought about Roman roads. This peace brought about the unification of law and order. The centralization of what the legal system would actually then be where Paul one day would be able to actually go and stand before Caesar to petition rather than being simply tried in a local city-state. There was a unification, in fact, of language. The stage was set for a new king of the world because the king of the world was a man of great pride. Now, we don't know exactly why Caesar Augustus commands this registration, There's many different people who offer up different opinions, but the key is he did so. He, in fact, was the one who decreed that the world should be registered. And that's important. Because why does that matter to those who are looking for the Son of God? What some ruler over across the earth is doing? Well, it's because God shows his sovereignty 
in the pride of a wicked ruler. We read in Proverbs 21.1, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. What brought about Jesus' birth, where Jesus' birth was brought about, was the desire of a foreign king who had just become king of the world. Now, the scepter, so-called, had all but left the hand of the Israelites. They were officially no longer their own people. This was a fulfillment of Genesis 49.10. And by the building and the establishing of the Roman Empire, Caesar sealed his own empire's destruction. As by cutting off the people of God from their very uh, existence as their own people, he created the dry soul out of which the root of Jesse would sprout. You see, the circumstances surrounding Christ are so amazing because none of it was done by people who feared God. It was all brought about by what, would we, what we would see as evil. By, in fact, the hatred of God and a desire to see his kingdom squelched. And yet we see that Christmas proclaims God's glory because Christmas reveals God's sovereignty. We see that with this registration, they had to leave their land, Mary and Joseph. And it's very interesting, this, this proclaiming of, of registration. It, some, some of the translations will say a taxation, and some say a, a, a registration. It's like a writing down of your name. And in essence, what we can gather from uh, non-biblical resources about what this was is most likely this would be the people of God pronouncing their own allegiance to Caesar instead of their own Lord and Savior. This was a selling out of the Israelite people, giving their kingdom out of the hands of God and into the hands of the kings of the earth. We see this in John 19.15 come to fruition. When the Pharisees cry out to Pilate who's in charge of them, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate, a godless ruler, says, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests, the pastors of the era, say, we have no king but Caesar. The submission of God's people to Caesar pointed to the very spiritual drought that was promised in Isaiah 53 too, When God said, for he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. In Christmas, we see God is sovereign over rulers. Not only this, but we see that he's sovereign over circumstances. If you look, we see that this is not simply Mary and Joseph. This is the whole world being upended. All of the people in the known world, we're having to move and go about to obey this command. Meaning that God would upend the, the lives of the entire world, ultimately, to move a pregnant girl to where she was promised to give birth hundreds of years prior. If that doesn't fascinate, of all the times for this announcement to go and be registered, most of those who understand and study history know that Caesar Augustus has taken rule for a while now. And so this, this command of registration came at a very particular time. So much so that she's described literally as great with child. What a kind way to describe her. 
Now, the medical care, whatever it may have been, was not necessarily going to fit with her current birth plan. You see, she was no longer going to be able to give birth in her hometown where she was expecting to give birth, but instead she was going to be traveling at the peak of its time. Because Mary and Joseph were not in charge of their own circumstances, we see that there was someone else working through them. That he who fixed in time from eternity past and he who told of it hundreds of years prior, we see that though Mary and Joseph had a plan for the birth of their child, God had a very different plan. And we read in Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. We're seeing that there is not simply man-made control here. Rather, Christmas reveals and proclaims God's glory because it reveals God's sovereignty. He's not only sovereign over rulers, he's not only sovereign over circumstances, but he's also sovereign over boundaries. Do you see this? Look, in verse 3, all went to be registered each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth. So this is where they're from. This is where they live. This is where they would be from in the future. But they were going to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Meaning that God had intended for these borders to be crossed. This isn't where they were from, but in order to fulfill his eternal, sovereign will, there was a humble, righteous young girl, a young Nazarene girl from Galilee, who feared the Lord and who met a humble and righteous man from Bethlehem of the line of David. So that an evil ruler across the world would be able to accomplish God's plan. You see, God is sovereign over circumstances. He's sovereign over rulers and he's sovereign over the boundaries in which they live. Now what's interesting also about this is read on. Verse 5. He went to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, Joseph then brings his extremely pregnant fiance, most likely, though, they were not yet living together. Yet he brings her to be registered with him. There's a lot of different opinions about why this could be. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. The reason that they made this journey was because the hand of the Lord is all that he pleases. And the world rotates in accordance and submission to his every iota of will. You see, Joseph should not have had to bring Mary, per se. But he did. Because this was not merely an event of a woman, pregnant out of wedlock, about to give birth, when a new king of the world came about. No, the king of the world had his plan in motion before this shadow of a king made a proclamation to upend the world and fulfill God's plan. We see God's glory in Christmas because we see God's sovereignty. Number two, Christmas proclaims God's faithfulness to his promises. Now, ultimately, we, we see in Scripture somewhere between 300 and 400 Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Okay? It, and down to the iota, down to the mark of the day, it's incredible. Um, it is the only 
uh, world religion that can make anything such close to a claim. And believe it or not, many of those 300, depending on who you're asking, 320, 350, somewhere in there, depending on who you're asking, many of those prophecies are in fact about the birth of Jesus Christ. A large percentage of them. We see that God, through Christmas, is proclaiming His glory because He will be faithful to His promises. But not only that, but we also see Him being faithful to promises that it's just superlative. It's it's unnecessary. We see that they're going to the house of Bethlehem. Now, this is technically, the, the, the term Bethlehem literally means the house of bread. It's fittingly called, as it would be the birthplace of the bread of life, the one who came down from heaven. In fact, the very house of bread, which fulfilled Micah 5, 2, speaking of the coming birth of the Savior from a small town called Bethlehem. We see that not only this, but they went to the city of David. Now, the city of David is an interesting term because ultimately... David didn't primarily live in Bethlehem. He lived in Zion, Jerusalem. No, this was not going to be the birthplace of the King David who ruled in glory. This was going to be the birthplace of the lowly shepherd David who watched over sheep. Number three. Christmas proclaims God's glory. Because Christmas reminds us of God's attributes. Now this is where, ladies, I'm talking to those of you with young children, I have parsed it down. I'll give you three, okay? And that's all I can do. That's as low as I can go. Read with me. We find here uh, in verse 7, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Now that terminology, inn, could just be guest room. Wherever it was that they had planned to stay when they arrived in Bethlehem, for whatever reason, there was no longer that same room. And so number one, we're going to see God's humility. There is no room in the guest room. The Savior... Eternal Yahweh, should he have lowered himself to the point of a man with glory and pomp and magnificence, this itself would be most incomprehensible and undeserved mercy. Have you ever thought about that? Had he come in his first coming the way he intends in his second coming, we would be oh so humbled to hear it. But the one to come... To make himself be found, not only in the form of the man, but as we just read, but to humble himself to the point of a slave. For him to be the one whom would have no place to rest his head, as we see later in Matthew 8, he still would not have. As foxes have dens, but the Savior of man has no place. So... Our humble Savior, far from his home, became homeless here on earth. What humility is this? 
Truly, in the kingdom of God, it must be so that the first will be last, the last shall be first. The highest is the lowest, and the lowest is highest. Most likely, this even further heaps on our humility of our Savior as he came to be an utterly poor man. Not only this, but he came to shepherds. Look at verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Shepherds. Now, it's often said that shepherds were possibly of ill repute. That's possible. I don't know. They're spoken very highly of throughout Scripture. We see in John 10, in Psalm 23, 1 Peter 2, Matthew 9, Hebrews 13, Revelation 7. Shepherds are given a very high state in Scripture, but perhaps that's because they're lowly to those from earth. But... Regardless, he came to the shepherds, those who labor in the fields. He did not come to the kings dozing in their palaces, but to the shepherds who stood watch over their sheep. He came as a baby, the eternal one bound in cloth and bound in time. This is the one who makes straight man's paths. And yet he's being put in swaddling clothes to keep his arms straight and still. The one who needs no thing has become a needy baby. And the one who binds, according to Job 38, the dark of the sea in swaddling bands is bound. Swaddled like a baby. The humility of this lowly slave is awestruck. Because Christmas proclaims the glory of God. We see his attribute of mercy. Why? Because he comes to rebels. Read with me. Suddenly, there was an angel. Suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. He comes bringing peace. Now, peace is only brought to those without it. This is no psychologist promising to bring peace between two equals that are quarreling. This is an invading and conquering king sending his delegation before him to bring about a peaceful submission and resolution. This is an invading king who sends that word host is translated armies. But when his armies march, they come to proclaim peace. It's baffling and something that no man, no human king would do. Though he has legions of angels at his beck and call, as we read in Matthew 26, they are not called to wage war. God's will is that scripture would be fulfilled. He sends out the whole host of angels with no war cry, but instead with a song of peace as he invades the enemy camp. We see God's mercy as he comes to rebels. We see God's grace, this third attribute. It's to those who he sets his pleasure on. Read with me again in verse 14. Peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. So this is, in fact, very uh, debated, but the, the Greek is very easy to read. Ultimately, 
This is not to all mankind. The word for that is anthropois. Only it is to all men who euodiakas. Do, ah, euodiakas. <laughs> Don't tell Jeff that I messed that up. The terminology is with whom he is pleased. This peace he does not bring to the whole world. Now, you may say, well, what about in verse 10? Fear not, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Yeah, it's not for the Jews only. It's for all people. But he brings peace to those whom he has set his peace upon. The terminology for this is he sets his good pleasure who he sets his pleasure upon. In fact, it's the exact same translation, the exact even same conjugation as Philippians 2.13, when we read that to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is, in fact, quoted in Matthew 3 as the heavens part, and a voice comes from heaven and says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. God brings peace, but it's a gracious peace. It's a peace to rebels, and yet it's dependent solely on his grace. It's dependent solely upon his grace. We read in Exodus 33:19, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. You see, this God has rejected the kings dozing in their palaces and chosen to reveal his glory to the shepherds on guard in the fields. He comes to wise men from far away from his people's lands. And no proclamation goes to the wise men of the Jews. For when they hear of Christ's coming and are disturbed right along with Herod, rather, they follow a star from afar for years to find this Christ, those who are not his people. Number four. Christmas declares God's glory. Because Christmas declares God's eternal plan. Read verse 14 again. This is an angelic couplet written intentionally as a hymn. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is proclaiming glory to God. This is not a message of man's worthiness nor a value that God puts on man. What do we see is proclaimed by the advent of the king of the world. Glory to God in the heavens, the highest. As God is glorified in heaven, in his perfect and radiant doxa, literally glory, so now that glory is made visible. He who lives in unapproachable light has drawn his light down low. He has stooped, just as when he stooped to see the Tower of Babel that pronounced the glory of man, so now God has brought his radiant light from up above to the dark world below. We see God's glory because we see his grace. We see that this is the whole purpose of Christmas. It's the glory of God being put on display. The whole purpose of Christmas is to put the glory of the creator on display for the world. The whole purpose of Christmas, the whole purpose of creation of mankind is to put on display his glory to the redemption of sinners. Now this word peace. Peace to those 
among those with whom he is pleased. This, this is one of those words that's kind of become a bit watered, hasn't it? I mean, I, I can listen to the Grinch and then immediately hear a song about peace on earth. Now, the word peace here is, uh, let me summarize. There is a reality to which God did not come to bring peace between people. Jesus, in fact, in his earthly ministry will go on to say, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. One to divide families. One to divide mother from daughter. Father from son. The peace that he brings is not a peace as in we all get to kind of have a cuddly, get along time. There's a story in 1914, in the First World War, there was this amazing moment that much against those who were battling, uh, those who were in charge of those battling, much against their command, all sides of the Great World War actually stopped firing on Christmas Day. There was, in fact, this, some of these meetings, some battlefields, not everywhere, in some of the battlefields in 1914 on December 25th, the two armies laid down their, their weapons. And they actually crossed over into no man's land and played soccer with each other. Saying, today we celebrate, tomorrow we shed blood. There is a degree to which Christmas, yes, does bring a temporal peace. But let me just say, the peace that is celebrated by the world about Christmas is not peace. It's a pause. It's a pause on the evil of the world. As one of the men on that field who were quite upset about everyone laying down arms was named Adolf Hitler. And merely three years later, he would put to death anyone who laid down arms on Christmas Day as he raged his global war. You see, the peace that Christmas brings is not like all of us kind of let down, let down our guard and kind of get along with family for a wee bit. That's not what, what is proclaimed here. The peace that is mentioned here is the same peace that is proclaimed by God throughout the Old Testament. This is the serpent stomper. He did not come off to throw the law away, but to fulfill it. He was the one, he ushered in God with us as a sympathetic high priest. He is the one who would stand between us as Moses, as the wrath of God burns against sinners. But for the sake of his beloved... Though there not even be ten righteous men in Sodom, he will avert his disaster and usher in his fleeing people to the safety of his kingdom. This is a peace of a God who brings a sword between man. And that same sword will pierce the hearts of those who trust him. That same sword will divide families and yet it will bind Christ to the cross. Which would bring peace, not between you and you, but with you and him. The peace proclaimed in Christmas is the peace that brings glory to God in the highest. This is a rescue mission of the God who is coming with his armies. But he sends first his armies of delegators to proclaim there is peace offered with me. No, he did not come just to unite people together. At the Tower of Babel, we see that there can be a faux peace made with man who is against God. With this, there's nothing miraculous. There's nothing miraculous when soldiers lay down their arms. God's peace does not come to just unite man. Because will not man unite against his son in the last day? True peace, God's peace, comes from the word 
of this peace treaty made flesh, signed with the blood of his glory, lowered that all who would turn might enter into him. And that's okay. Family, everybody, okay? I told you, it's fine. We're good. No, this is a peace that brings the angels to sing, hark, causes us to sing, hark the herald, angels sing. Glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild. Where? God and sinners reconciled. We don't celebrate a pause of evil on Christmas where M&Ms and Coca-Cola can finally get along. We celebrate the peace of a God who is filled with wrath, anger, hatred, and disdain towards sinners. And instead of bringing war, brings his own son in the flesh to drink his wrath. Peace. Let us not celebrate the shadow, the plagiarization of God's peace. We celebrate true peace. There's no simple pause. He doesn't come to bring happy feelings, but lasting and eternal peace with the one who created and sustains the world. He brings true peace, lasting peace, God-glorifying peace. Number five. Christmas teaches us to ponder God's glory. Christmas is all about God's glory because it actually teaches us to ponder God's glory. Read with me. And they went with haste, verse 16. And found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. Verse 18. And all who heard it, there were other people there. All who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds investigated. The shepherds came running with much haste. In fact, it's hard to communicate in English the haste they took. In fact, they left the flock of sheep to go and seek out one sheep. Yet they seek the sheep not because he is lost, but he is perfectly found. They seek this sheep not to rescue it and bring it back to the fold, but to be rescued by it that they might be brought into his fold. They leave the sacrificial lambs, those lambs of Bethlehem that were so near to the temple that by law they were required to be sacrificial lambs. They leave those sacrificial lambs that they watch over so they might go see the one sacrificial lamb that watches over the whole world. The shepherds investigated. And all who heard wondered at the saying. There were other people there other than the shepherds. All who heard of the saying given by the angel about the birth of this child stood in wonder. There was some excitement. There was awe. There was surprise. There was even curiosity, you could say. And yet they were wondering more for information and wondering about what end would take place. That's the idea of the wonderment here. It's a curiosity. Their interests were piqued. They were willing to to join in the excitement. And yet... Like a dog that can play piano, it can draw a a crowd, but not for very long. Whatever people were present in the town of Bethlehem who witnessed these events, they were attracted to the excitement, at least for a short time. And then there's the word but in verse 
what is it, 19? But Mary. You see, she's done something different, possibly to the shepherds, maybe. Possibly than everyone else is wondering about. But Mary pondered. Now this term, pondered, this is in fact a deep pondering that takes place in the heart of someone who already knows something. But now sees it more truly to fulfillment. This is the kind of pondering that took place with Job when he said, I had heard of you from the ear, but now I see from you in the eye. The literal translation is, is throwing together. It's like that person when something, you're, you're talking about like your favorite movie. And you're like, well, yeah, but that person was the same person as that person. And it clicks. And all of a sudden, everything that you've been hearing about and talking about and knowing about was all of a sudden coming into a straight line. You see, Mary had already heard about this Savior. In fact, we just sang a song based off the Magnificat, her response to this angel's proclamation to her. This is a deep pondering of someone who already knows what's true. And they're treasuring it. It's the idea of a spark meeting fuel. Not curiosity. She already knew him to be Savior. She knew this was God's grace, this mercy, this Noel, this birth. This is not a phrase that points to confusion and needing to think through something or figure stuff out. This is a sense of awe that inflames a fire that's already been burning within. It is a fuel. This is a heaping of treasure upon treasure that has already found its home in the hall of man's hearts. She's throwing the treasure on top of what's already there. This is the idea that one has faith in and trust in what has been said, even as that faith is being stirred, grown, and fanned. For lack of a better phrase, this is something that you can take to the bank, and this person has already done so. She treasures it in her heart. And it's in fact the same phrase as in Genesis 37 when Jacob rebukes his son Joseph for his dreams from the Lord. And it says, yet he pondered these things in his heart. So I have two applications. I believe there's something to a degree of two-ish kinds of people here today. And probably all of us are big fans of Christmas. If you're in this country, most likely you tend towards an enjoyment of this holiday. Here's what I pray. I pray that you would ponder the glory of God seen in Christmas this year. Would you stand back and see him high and lifted up during this time? Would you who stand far off from him, you know who you are, okay? You like the candles, you maybe like the baby Jesus, you like the happiness, you like pausing the evil of life and mankind, right? You enjoy the Christmas specials that make you feel fuzzy just as much as the whole like, you know, God being at peace with us kind of a thing. You like the pausing of evil, but you will not be ruled by him. You will not bow your knee to a king. You will not obey him, and you will certainly not live for him. To you, I say, I bring good news of great joy. This God has scheduled Christmas, the Advent, 
the coming of the Messiah, so that you might come to see his glory. That this is a God of glory in the highest, and that he is greatly to be feared. Yet, he comes to you in your rejection of him with armies, not to bring about your destruction, but to offer to you again peace. The king of the heavens and the earth extends his hand of grace and says, come to this land of God, this true son of righteousness, who was born to bring peace between you and God by bearing away God's wrath and offering you eternal life. And that is the only true peace that you could ever know. And until you know that peace, all that you have is a shadow, a plagiarization, a pausing of the evil of mankind. But for you, who are here, who like Mary, and this is just fuel to the flame. This is treasure piling upon already the treasure of your soul. Those of you who ponder these things in your hearts, perhaps you're treasuring these things for the first time. Perhaps you're treasuring these things for the last time before you go to be with him. We don't know. But might I invite you to join in with the heavenly couplet, that hymn sung by angel tongues. Would you stand in awe of this glorious God? Would you sing of the good news of peace with God that has been brought by such a glorious and yet lowly king? And would you this year be reminded of the glory of God in Christmas? Would you treasure him in your hearts? Would you sing praises to him among the nations? Would you bring this good news of great joy with you as you go? As you treasure him and teach others to do the same. You see, Christmas is all about God's glory. Christmas reveals God's sovereignty. Christmas proclaims God's faithfulness to his promises. Christmas reminds us of God's attributes. Christmas declares God's eternal plan, his glory and our peace with him. And Christmas teaches us to ponder treasure in our hearts, God and his glorious grace. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you for this time. We thank you for the babbles in this room. We thank you for the squeaks and the giggles. We thank you for the, the people who have come here who've never stepped foot in this building. We thank you for the people who've come into this building and have promised to never come again. Lord, we thank you for those that you are once again offering up the opportunity to meditate on your glory seen in the Christmas story, that which is not only found in Charlie Brown, but that which was scheduled long ago proclaimed thousands of years prior and yet perfectly fitting over rulers, over circumstances, over boundaries, over prophecies, over proclamations of your eternal mission. Lord, would we ponder these things in our heart? Would we throw together the treasure of Christmas? And would we delight in you 
Lord, for those who in this room do not know you, would you reveal that to them? Would you help them have no peace until they find the true peace found only in you? Lord, would those who know this peace not bow to the selfish ambition of being happy to run to heaven and to go alone there? But Lord, would we take serious the call to sing the songs of Christmas, to proclaim your glory during this reminder of a time. We pray, Father God, that you would stir in us a love and a portion in you, in you alone. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.